Welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm Michelle Miao, host and producer of The Michelle Miao Show, and also a member of the Board of Governors for the Commonwealth Club of California, the longest and oldest running public affairs forum in this nation. This is one of many, actually over 350 virtual programs the club has produced since the pandemic. We hope to see you again live at one of our in-person events, but until then, we hope that you're staying safe and healthy. You can visit commonwealthclub.org for our full programs and for podcasts and past shows. The Asian American community is still reeling from the tragic deaths of eight people, six of whom were Asian American after a mass shooting that targeted Asian massage businesses in Atlanta, Georgia. There are many things that you can do to show support for your Asian American community members, whether it's a simple check-in to see if someone is doing okay or speaking up and out and against Asian, uh, anti-Asian racism, hate, and violence, all of it makes an impact. All of it matters. Tonight, we're sharing and highlighting the work of three incredible AAPI leaders who are doing the grassroots work collaboratively with all of our community members to ensure that we're all safe. Before we begin our program, I'd like to give thanks to the Commonwealth Club of California for providing the platform for us to come together to have this conversation. And also, I'd like to give thanks to our sponsor, Allie, Polly and Associates. Here's Allie and Polly with a special message. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi. Thank, thank you so much, Michelle. We're proud and honored to support tonight's important discussions on AAPI women leaders who build coalitions in their communities. Polly and I are sisters. We immigrated from Laos. Um, we experienced racism, uh, sexism, misogyny, and hate. While those situations are difficult, scary, and unjust, we also have experienced the power of our communities coming together to overcome these barriers. Being healthy and safe is important to all our communities. For us as AAPI women, immigrants, mothers, neighbors, and entrepreneurs, it is important to us that we're not only healthy and safe, but also financially dependent and strong. That's right, right? Ali. Yeah, that's right. That's very that's important. Right. That's right. Um, it's it's you know we we have been uh, working on educating the community about financial planning, such as four hundred one k, and how to properly safeguard their financial well being in the event of premature death and any devastating illnesses. With new tax law uh, coming up, it's important people know the changes and the impacts on their retirement accounts. We are committed to our community to ensure we protect your hard-earned money. If you would like to hear more about these changes, uh, please do not hesitate to contact us. Uh, We're here for you, and we would love to hear from you. Um, and, you know, we're pretty much, we have uh, financial professionals uh, in 50 states speaking multiple languages. And myself and Ali, we speak Laos and Thai, right? So let's make sure um, that, you know, we all are living our best 
and free of hate and inequality. Thanks again for being with us. And now back to Michelle to begin her show. Thank you so much, Allie and Polly. We couldn't have done this without you and your support. Um, without further ado, I'm very honored to introduce to you our speakers tonight. And just a reminder, you're joining us, you're in the Zoom room. Use the chat feature to send us your questions and we'll get them to our speakers. So tonight we have Nikki Kalma, aka Tita Ida, who is currently the Director of Engagement for the San Francisco Community Health Center. Her activism and advocacy is not only well-known, but already considered a legacy. She spearheaded remarkable initiatives and programs to prevent the spread of HIV AIDS in the AAPI LGBTQ community that has changed and improved many lives. Nikki was also appointed by then Mayor Gavin Newsom to be the first transgender member on the Commission on the Status of Women. She has raised significant support for various organizations, including the Transgender Law Center, AIDS Housing Alliance, and API Wellness Center. We also have Liana Louie, who is the founder of the United Peace Collaborative, a nonprofit organization of dedicated volunteers who provide foot patrol in San Francisco's Chinatown district. Founded in March of 2020, after hearing then-President Donald Trump call, call COVID-19 the China virus, Liana started United Peace Collaborative to address the rise in anti-Asian violence. Liana joined the U.S. Army at 18 years old upon graduation from high school, she has served five years as active duty enlisted, trained in general medical and pharmacology at Fort Sam in Houston, Texas, and is also an entrepreneur in the Glim Super Alkaline High pH Water Cleaner business. And finally, we have Bo Talyarabe, who's the founder and executive director of Coalition of Asian American Leaders in Minnesota. She is a dynamic change maker who also co-founded the Asian Pacific Institute on Gender-Based Violence, Hmong Women Achieving Together, Sisterhood Laos, Red Green Rivers, Building Our Future, a Global Campaign, and the Building More Philanthropy with Purpose, BMPP Giving Circle. Let's welcome our speakers tonight. Everyone, thank you so much for being with us. Why don't we start with um, sharing, you know, your work and information about your organization and, you know, give some, some space and time for you to address kind of how what's been going on has impacted your work. We'll start with Leanna. Okay, so uh, United Peace Collaborative, we're a bunch of volunteers. We actually started very small last March. It was just a few of us, and now we have grown to over 50 volunteers that patrol San Francisco Chinatown. So unlike a lot of other volunteer organizations, we are very organized. We have a tracking system of all the incidents that happened. And uh, we have uh, protocols, we train people uh, what, what to look for, and we have steps um, that, that we train them. So it's, it's very organized, and um, we also have uh, volunteers sign waiver forms and take their driver's license as well, whereas most other organizations just kind of like invite people in and then they just go out to, to walk and, and um, they don't really have like records of stuff. So um, the main reason why for organization to be at that organizes because we actually also work with other organizations such as Stop Crime SF, which is a court watch group. And we also work with SFPD, which, you know, they are a, a government entity, as well as other um, other nonprofits that have patrols out there. So um, over the last year, we have logged 56 cases and uh, they're uh, different, different things. So um, 
our cases uh, can be uh, medical assistance uh, to senior citizens or just uh, helping them with certain certain things and uh, includes graffiti, graffiti removal. We've removed over 600 graffiti tags in Chinatown. Uh, we also do um, uh, uh, give food to the homeless and we have caught uh, people who were stealing. We caught people who were trying to break cars. We've prevented many car break-ins and window break-ins of businesses and residents. And we've also um, de-escalate and move people who were uh, hostile towards residents who were trying to get into their homes. And, and we also helped remove somebody was, that was staying in the hallway of one of the buildings that he's not supposed to stay in. And he was scaring the children and the women that were, that were trying to get to their, their doors. Um, we have so many cases, but um, of all the cases that we have, um, 12 of them actually led to arrest. They were actually crimes. Um, six, four of them from the night of the looting on May 30th, um, after um, some protests that were going on in San Francisco and, and around the world last year. And uh, we had also uh, got four um, graffiti taggers, which did some massive destruction to, to buildings, um, historical buildings in Chinatown. Um, and we also uh, were able to get uh, people who were stealing um, uh, in Chinatown arrested, as well as a couple of very violent offenders who uh, assaulted, a one assaulted a security officer uh, in Chinatown, and another one uh, assaulted somebody uh, who was just walking on the streets for no reason. He was assaulted. So we were, were able to work with the police. We, we, we take pictures, we observe, record, and report. So we take photos, videos, and we submit those evidence to police so that they have very solid evidence so that they can follow up on their arrest and also um, send the cases to the DA. Now, what happens in the DA's office? We don't know. They haven't provided us any updates yet, and we're, we're really frustrated about that. That's where we're at right now. Thank you. And we'll talk more about all that work. Bo? Hi, good evening, everybody. My name is Bo Taurabi, and thanks for having me tonight. Uh, I am executive director for an organization based here in Minnesota called the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. Uh, we're a social justice network that harnesses the collective power of Asian American leaders to improve the lives of community. And so we really do our work through both um, organizing communities to understand uh, issues that are impacting them, uh, building social justice leadership among uh, Asian Minnesotan leaders, and then uh, working collaboratively and in solidarity with other communities to create systems change. So a lot of our work really embodies um, paying attention to what is uh, impacting our communities and then developing solutions that include things from anywhere to from research to policy to uh, leadership development to really community organizing to ensure that uh, we are indeed contributing to creating a thriving uh, community for, for everyone. So that I will stop there because I know we have a lot of questions and we'll be in discussion more about the issue. And Nikki. Yes, hi. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm so happy to be here. My name is Nikki Kalma, and also for some know me as Tita Ida. Uh, I'm the San Francisco Community Health Center here in San Francisco. We have been around for almost 30 years um, here in the Tenderloin area, where we have served pretty much a big, uh, big most of the Tenderloin. But our organization originally started at the height of the HIV 
AIDS epidemic where we were once called API Wellness Center. A lot of our work is uh, rooted in serving the Asian and Pacific Islander communities here in San Francisco. Um, it just so happened that we were given a uh, federally qualified health uh, clinic status, and uh, we had to expand all our services. Plus, you know, HIV has been looking very different 20 years ago to now. So um, we have to expand and make sure that we are able to serve and attend to the needs of many of our clients. However, we did keep some of our basic um, groups and programs, such as our Joy Luck Club, which is for um, API uh, LGBTs who are living with HIV. And we also have our, our ATE program, which is the uh, transgender uh, empowerment program and also our uh, the connection program which serves asian pacific islander men who have sex with men um just a little bit of what we've been doing for the past year since the pandemic uh, kicked in is that we really uh, as an fqhc we had we have, we've been mandated to really serve the community you know we are open 40 hours a week just to make sure that uh, folks who need any medical assistance or medical attention uh, that we can attend to them and if not refer them out and um, we also have developed and worked with uh, three other organizations, GLIDE, um, San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and also the Curry Center in which we call it the COVID-19 response team, where we were able to bring street medicine to folks uh, for the folks in the Tenderloin, and we were able to conduct them there at the streets for them. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we did pretty much this past week, past year, excuse me, but um, I'd love to talk to you more about it later. And uh, yeah, that's who we are. Thank you all so much. So with that being said, you know, all of you have been doing your work in, in different ways, different you know methods, and it has evolved, and such as like Leanna starting a foundation or an organization in reaction to what's happening. But what's happening with anti-Asian racism and hate isn't something new. And so I'd like to start with Bo and helping us really understand I think the foundation of your work is because of the injustices our communities um, have been impacted by. And, and so it's really important to understand that this is nothing new. We actually have, we're anticipating the rise in violence and uh, anti-hate, anti-Asian hate incidents because of the pandemic. Bo? Sure. Thank, thank you, Michelle. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, what happened in Atlanta is heartbreaking and tragic and, uh, you know, ang- uh, causes a lot of anger in the community. But as you said, it's not a surprise to the community, right, who have been saying for the past year or uh, a bit longer that they um, were, you know, experiencing these types of tar- um, targeted hate. Um, but also that we have a long history in this country of uh, anti-Asian uh, racism. So this isn't the first time that Asian Americans are targeted for um, by racism. And for um, centuries, the U.S. has really excluded Asians from entering the country 
except as exploited workers, right? Uh, and, um, you know, so anything from the Page Act uh, Amendment in 1875 that barred Chinese women from uh, immigrating um, to the Chinese Exclusion Act to the incarceration of Japanese Americans, the killing of Vincent Chin. I mean, there's a long history there uh, that really uh, shapes our community's uh, immigration path here, as well as the experiences of anti-Asian hate that is, um, I would say, both interpersonal and systemic and uh, is important for us to acknowledge because I think sometimes when we see the harm that is being done, um, we want to sort of just point to one person, but it's very much linked to a system that makes uh, our communities feel othered, right? And that um, it's not that this hasn't um, happened and it's just invisible, it's an, a, a silencing of the community, right? So, um, but we certainly have been hearing about this. And um, and so, you know, throughout our history, um, both the U.S. history and our immigration and economic policies, um, we've treated Asians as disease-ridden, criminal, subhuman, super, you know, human, uncivilized. So um, I just want to remind folks that the model minority myth that we have today was not the way Asians were perceived uh, before the civil rights movement where Black people demanded uh, equality, right? And that the model minority myth is really created not to respond to Black communities. And so, um, but what has happened since the model minority myth and now also uh, the constant state of feeling like we're perpetual foreigners continues to both make our community sufferings um, invisible and also um, uh, uh, excludes the community from conversations about racism in a way that acknowledges the pain that they're experiencing. So I'll just touch on that because I am sure that both uh, Tida and Liana also have things to add. Yeah. Nikki, I'll head to you next. I mean, as a member of the LGBTQ community and on transgender and AAPI and woman, uh, there's a lot that you could say about the history of anti-Asian, you know, hate and racism and violence, and also anti-LGBTQ. Yeah, we need less. We need more than this hour, you know, if we're going to talk about it. But I also I appreciate what Bo has mentioned, you know, given that history um, and also want to, you know, kind of like um, uh, step back to what Liana said in regards to, you know, um, we we have reported I, I've seen many reports being given to the DA, to the op, to the policemen, police officers and everything. But what happens up there? We don't know, you know, um, if it's being dealt with, if, is it be, is it being fairly heard and all stuff. And, you know, for trans folks who are API transgender folks, you know, there's a lot of barriers that you have to consider when, when they are reporting, um, hate crimes or crimes that are being done against. And like, for example, language barrier alone is one big factor that sometimes when, and you, and we experience this in terms of like, they don't take us seriously, you know. They don't take the uh, the complaints seriously. That they don't take the reporting seriously. Plus, I think it's the stereotyping of all a Asian Americans who we are all. I mean, especially in the transgender community, like we're all sex workers, we're all drug dealers, we're all. I mean, all negative. You know, those things come in place first. So I think that there should be really 
the awareness and the consciousness should be brought up like 10 times up, you know, in terms of like who we are as a community and who we are as a people. So, I mean, it's really unfortunate. This is, is happening right now and it's more amplified. It's not new. It's not new. This is, has been going on for the longest time. And uh, it's just now that I, I you know, I, it's unfortunate that we have to talk about it now, but we should have been talking about this for quite some time. And finally, Liana, again, yes, the history of anti-Asian racism and hate incidents. Um, we know that seniors or elderly, the Asian elderly in San Francisco, the Bay Area, have been targeted for quite some time. Um, and, you know, talk to us about the leading up to that moment that you heard the president, the then president, Donald Trump, you know, say that COVID-19 was a China, Chinese virus that led you to create the, organi the organization. Yeah, so uh, even before that, like uh, in to uh, 2019, there was that, um, uh, actually the president of the Chinese six companies, Mr. Wong, he was beat on Stockton Street. And when his, uh, when, another, when his friend came to help him, his friend was beat too. They were, they were robbed of their, their valuables. And it was just like really, when I saw that, I was like, something is really wrong with this picture because you see all these other people there. It was not like nobody was there. There was like maybe 40, 60 people there in broad daylight. It happened and nobody did anything about it. So I was really upset about that. And then, you know, uh, we were just hoping that things would go away. You know, that was an isolated incident. It'll never happen again. A couple months later, um, in, in January 2020, a lady on Stockton Street was beat and, and dragged and she was robbed of her valuables. And, and then, and then a few weeks later in Bayview, where I live, there was a, a older Chinese gentleman. He was in his seventies. He was just trying to collect cans and he was, he was harassed and, and assaulted. And, and not only that, but the video went viral and it was full of hate. And that was so concerning for us because I live in the baby. I grew up there. And so I had to talk to my neighbors there. And, and when they had a rally, I had to be there and, and just talk to them and say, Hey, you know what? This, this has to stop. You know, we just can't keep going on like this. And so, um, you know, excuse me. And, um, uh, a month later, then we we go on TV, we, you know, we're watching TV and listening to all this COVID stuff. And next thing you know, the president is talking all this nonsense about it's a Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, all that stuff. When in actuality, nobody knows where it's from, not even the scientists, because Wuhan is the largest transfer airport in China and possibly the entire world. That means everybody that needs to go, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou or anywhere in China, you have to go to Wuhan to transfer to get to those other destinations. So almost everybody from around the world stopped there before they go elsewhere. So for all we know, that virus could have came from anywhere in the world, but it was discovered there. So that is a distinction that, that he needs to make. It's not a virus that we don't know where it came from. Nobody knows where it came from. But so for him to call it a China virus or a Wuhan virus is absolutely wrong. It's hateful and it causes people to fear the Chinese people and cause people to believe that we are the virus and they are out to destroy us. They believe that killing us means killing the virus, which is absolutely not true. And there are lots of ignorant people who do that and they don't have to be a Trump follower to believe that. They could be just anybody off the streets who's ignorant about it and, and who who uh, relates, who thinks that 
Chinese people are the virus. It could be anybody. It doesn't even have to be a Trump supporter. So it makes us targets and it makes it makes it very dangerous for us to be out there. And you can see over the last 12 months, the FBI has logged over almost 4,000 cases of hate crimes against Asian Americans. But how it's charged in the DA level and the, at the cities and counties, we don't know. Nobody's tracking those. So that's very concerning for us. But so as far as what, how that's what led us to 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 um, believe that we need to go do something about it because we were waiting for a leader to step up. We could not wait anymore. We just had to be the change. We just had to be the leaders that were needed, necessary. It's not something I want to do. I, I wish I never had to get into it, but now it's like, you know, I, I, I stepped up with a, a lot of other people who decided to step up. You know, they did their thing. I did my thing. And, and this is UPC. We're getting more and more members. And not only that, I have people in Los Angeles contacting me. We drove down Los Angeles last month and we did some, we talked and, and got some people together. And now, now they're, Doing patrols, San Jose. We just trained San Jose in the beginning of March. Now they just started patrolling there. Uh, we were in uh, Oakland in February, in middle of February. We went to the rallies there and, and got a group of people who started patrolling there. And now they have like six different groups in in uh, Oakland, which is not not started by me, but started by other leaders in the community. And I'm just so proud of them for all stepping up because there's no one person that could do it. It takes everybody's help to do it. And, and everybody can do something. You don't have to necessarily start a patrol or do a patrol. You can you can do it. You can help in other ways. You can help just by clicking on a share button on on uh, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or just making a response, stating that you know you you are against people who uh, who do all this violence towards Asians. Making a statement, not being silent about it. Just just those little things make a difference. Not only that, but if we have rallies, come out to the rallies. If you don't want to be the leader to shout, at least be somebody to to chant with us. You know, to be in, be back there to support us, to back us up. And if you could write letters, you're good at writing letters. Write letters to your legislators. Tell them what needs to happen. They need to have legislation that protect Asian Americans in this in this crisis right now. It is a crisis. Four close to four thousand cases is a crisis. Yeah. So and yeah. and and some people do court watch. That's so important. So if you you can do court watch at home, you know, uh, you can follow the cases, see where it's at, when the next court date is. Let us know if you want to rally at the courthouse or if you want to rally at the city hall or wherever. Let us know. Uh, if you're in San Francisco or Bay Area, I'll be there. I'll be there. But you know, also connect, connect with other people. So if you're in, in Atlanta or in, in uh, South Carolina or North Carolina or whatever, and you don't have a leader out there, connect with people. Cause everybody, somebody knows somebody, everybody knows somebody that could help. So, you know, so let's keep talking. Let's keep talking about these subjects and don't let it die because the minute that we get silent about it is when it's going to get worse. So do not be silent about it. That's a great segue to the next question, which, you know, listening to all three of you, knowing that this has been our history since the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, you know, many years ago. Well, uh, what we're what we're experiencing are symptoms of something that is broken, something that um, continuously, uh, you know, re-traumatizes us over and over and for many decades. And so whether it's 
organizing and mobilizing in this way to address the situation today, um, or it's you know changing some policies that we desperately need. I'd love to hear from each of you and kind of what your thoughts are of how we how we address this, how we move forward. Is it you know putting pressure on the DA to prosecute? Is it more law enforcement? Is it more housing? Is it breaking the horrible cycle of poverty in this country? I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we change it from being, you know, these symptoms to actual solutions so that future generations are not experiencing this. We'll start with Bo. Yeah, I, you know, I've been getting that question a lot, obviously, because I think um, sometimes when when individuals are harmed, we think that the police are helpful. But I just want to say that, you know, we really can't police racism away, right? That um, uh, even though there has been hard won hate crimes laws, what we know is that our current system of policing isn't fighting racism, right? And it's not protecting individuals. And so what Liana and what that's actually what what is protecting communities, um, that it's it's about communities uh, keeping each other safe, and not necessarily a system of policing that um, punishes uh, things, crimes of poverty, or those kinds of things. And so I really believe that um, and also uh, in recognition that policing has uh, disproportionately caused a lot of harm and pain and death, especially in Black, Native, Latinx, and LGBTQ plus communities, right? That um, we are in this together. And so the question isn't just how are we keeping Asians safe? Um, it's how are we keeping everybody safe? Um, and yes, we need to do a lot of education so that Asian Americans and Asian history, Asian American history, uh, is included um, uh, and and how racism shows up for us is different than how racism shows up for another community. But I do think that it's important for us to address the root causes of gender and race, um, uh, race-based violence, right? That these are, um, but I also want to say that communities are not vulnerable. They're made vulnerable, right? Uh, which in turn creates conditions that are, um, that leave people unprotected. Um, and so then they face interpersonal or systemic violence. Um, you know, just this past week, we had four Hmong women who were killed by their uh, intimate partners. Um, and so, yes, I'm devastated by racism, but I'm also devastated by gender-based violence, right, that haunts many in our communities as well. Um, and so I feel like we need to improve um, conditions for low-wage workers, particularly women of color. That's what Atlanta told us, right, that uh, this wasn't just about one identity, that a perpetrator who hated uh, that identity attacked that. In fact, yes, he targeted three Asian businesses, chose to go and harm, uh, you know, predominantly Asian women. But it's the industry that they were in. It's also that they were women, right, to be perceived as disposable and not valued. Um, so um, I feel like um, it's important for us to dismantle um these kinds of systems and to make sure that when we are wanting to protect everybody, that it is important that Asian Americans are included, but that um, it has to be uh, about also addressing those root causes. Nikki? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with Bo. I mean, you know, I also think that there is so much, I mean, there's so much work that needs to be done. Um, I do believe that 
it starts from within us as people uh, coming together. Um, I like the veracity of Leanne's, you know, just getting people together and just making sure that we are all united and we are hearing the same message and the stories that we hear, you know, it's so important. Um, I just recently attended a rally uh, at the Castro last Sunday, and it was, there's something to be said about when people get together, especially for a certain cause, you know, for a certain reason. And um, I think we need to keep on continue doing all of this, um, all of this uh, um, efforts. And um, we have to watch out for each other, most definitely, making sure that we are always present at tables where this racism and all of these things are being discussed. You know, it's so important to have a seat at the table. And at the same time, just making sure that, um, you know, uh, for me, I always look at, I, I, I don't look at the person per se, but I look at the behavior that they do and how that can impact other people, making people realize that that behavior is not appropriate or is not, should not be allowed, you know, so, and it could be corrected. So, you know, so. And Leanna, you had already spoken of a few things that, you know, are great suggestions and recommendations for community members um, to be active. But in your mind, you know, is the United Peace Collaborative here to stay? It has to stay forever. I mean, how will it be sustained? Or is is it is it something that you think should be in addition to what we have in society? Well, <clears throat> I... In my dreams, in my dreams, I wish I didn't have to do this. I uh, was actually having a vacation with my fiance. We were on a cruise uh, on the first week of March. And when we came back from the cruise, we, you know, all this started and we just felt like we had to do something. And of course, I wish that we weren't needed so that we can just, you know, go on with our merry lives. But it, it seems like now more than ever, we're, we're needed and it doesn't look like it's slowing down. So we're going to be here for as long as we can. And, and uh, thank goodness people are uh, seeing what's going on and they're getting involved. We're getting a lot more donations. Uh, our 501c3 is, is almost complete. And so, you know, we're looking into hopefully uh, getting some government support, some grants. Right now we have uh, zero funds from any city, state, or uh, uh, federal government agency, which, you know, um, we're okay because we've been, we've been doing this all on our own dime with a, a, some donations from uh, residents and merchants and individual um, donors, which we're, we're very grateful of. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to be here for as long as we are needed, you know, and if, if need be, um, make it something permanent. I mean, we are um, still processing the 501c3, which, which means that, you know, hopefully somebody will step up and take my job soon because I'm, I'm so re ready to hand over the baton to somebody else. Um, but as far as, you know, I really agree with what Nikki was saying, you know, when when um, when we look at crimes and stuff like that, we cannot look at people's uh, race. We have to look at their behavior, you know, who done what. So regardless of, um, you know, with their, their race or color or origin or, you know, or sexual orientation or whatever, we have to look at their behavior. If their behavior is harmful to society, it needs to be addressed. We can't just say, oh, it's, you know, slapped on the hand. Oh, they have this 
problem or this problem, or they come from a poor family or whatever. We cannot excuse that. We really cannot excuse that. I came from a really poor family. I was born in Toisan, China. It's a poor farming village. My toy was dirt and water in the pond in front of our, our village. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't, the people here that live near me in Baby Hunters Point, they actually have a place to live. We live in shacks and we, we farm the rice fields. So if you want to talk about socioeconomic, I, I come from a very poor uh, situation. So, you know, people will argue, well, but you have a family structure. Yes, I have family structure. And I believe very firmly in a family structure, whether it's, you know, to men, to women, men, women, or whatever the situation is, whether you're transgender or, I believe that you need to have a support system, no matter what that looks like, you have to have a support system. And I believe that every community can do that. It, it is not, you know, people who say that, oh, well, we can't do that because we're not, you know, we're not raised like that, but you can train yourself to do that. The, beauty of, of being human is that we are adaptable, we are smart, and, and if we reach into our brains and reach into our hearts, we can do anything. And, and I believe that if everybody keeps talking about it, keeps raising awareness, and keep encouraging uh, communities to, to rise up, I think that would be beautiful. There's a, a African-American um, leader right now, his name is uh, Julian Gordon. He is teaching African Americans how to invest in properties, how to, you know, uh, uh, build generational wealth. So we need to encourage more leaders like that. Uh, and then there's also a lot of Asian American um, leaders who are doing that as well in, in their um, in their education format to teach people how to be uh, financially independent. In fact, Polly and Ali, they're perfect examples. They're teaching people how to, you know, uh, not be stuck in the financial buying. And it's very important that we have those education systems. And unfortunately, the public schools aren't teaching that, but they should. I mean, by the time you're in high school, you should know how to uh, do your basic numbers in your checkbook. You should how to know how to file taxes. You should know how to fill out job applications. Do all those things. Why aren't our schools teaching that? They should be teaching that. You know, back uh, in the eighties when I was going to high school, we had uh, we had mechanic shop, we had a print shop, we had computer science, right? All these different things where you can, if you graduate high school, you could get a job just about anywhere. And a pretty good job where you can back then you could buy a house even a, a minimum wage back then so you know there's a lot of social economic inequality but I, I think that also has to do with everything that's going on in, in terms of the education system and that needs to be changed but you know that's that's also i'm going to reiterate that there does need to be policing I'm sorry, if you think that we need to get rid of the police, something's very wrong with that because you cannot expect thugs to police the streets. Just cannot. There needs to be, but what happens, what needs to happen with the police is that they need more training. So when I was in the army, I spent 11 years. I spent a lot of time, I was an equal opportunity officer. So I was, I spent lots of time training about other cultures, about African-American culture, about uh, the different Latino cultures, you know, Puerto Ricans don't like it when you call them Mexican, 
okay? And in the same way, it, it, Mexicans don't like it when you call them Puerto Rican, and Chinese people don't like it when you call them Cambodian, and Thai people don't like it when they call you call them Japanese. So, you know, it's very important that our police officers now, they need to be better trained and be culturally sensitive about, you know, how, how they approach people, how they talk to people, and, and, and that's really, really important. Like, they need to start from uh, getting to know people, de-escalating. But if they do, there are cases where they encounter very violent people. Don't fool yourself in thinking that there's no violent people out there. There are some really violent people that needs to be handled. So I think when people talk about defunding, they have to be very careful not to say, oh, no, we don't need the police anymore. Well, you know what? What if that person comes at you at, at gunpoint? My very good friend, Kelvin Morgan, who's an African-American man, he was robbed at gunpoint when he was driving as an Uber driver. And let me tell you, he was praying a police officer was there. So when people talk about that, you have to be very careful what you wish for. Because if there's no policing at all, guess what? I think those attacks might even go up. And I'm going to be very real with you. I'm out there every day. I'm out there every day. And if and if you're not out there every day and you don't see it, I'm sorry. We Everybody needs a reality check. And if you're joining us and if you have a response or have a question, send them our way through the Zoom chat box there and we'll get them to our speakers. Um, does anyone want to respond to Leanna's comments uh, from our, our panelists, Bo or Nikki? Yeah, I think I'll just chime in. I mean, I think um, you, you uh, not not a direct uh, response about whether we need police. I just think that, um, you, you know, the ways in which the police disproportionately hurt our communities, um, you know, I just think that that is something that we have to look at. Like there, there, there is definitely violence in our society, and that's really important. But racism uh, and most of the cases that have come to us um, are things that the police won't do anything about, right? Um, that create intimidation, that create fear for people, um, that are definitely discriminatory, but they're not punishable by law. And so that has everything to do with racism, that it has everything to do with the fact that people don't know about Asian Americans. They don't see the experiences of Asian Americans as a part of our discussions about race, right, and racism. And I do think that it's really important to also recognize that, um, you know, a lot of, uh, we're not born to be racist, we're taught to be racist, right? Um, and so that ends up, and, and that lateral harm does in fact happen. So I'm not saying that just because you're a black or brown per person, you don't hurt each other. In fact, that happens because we live in proximity to each other, right? Um, and so I think that's important, but I do think that, um, my experience. And we had a situation here where a young man went to the bar, right? Someone is being super racist. Uh, they get into a fight and he punches the other guy, right? The police come, he's the one that's arrested. And now he's, uh, he has deportation orders. So, so I just want us to know that the consequences when you are a person of color, when you are an immigrant, uh, they are, you know, multiple, right, and layered. And so as much as I do believe that there is violence and we need safety mechanisms, I also know that 
you know, the ways in which police treat people of color is very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, that's important to acknowledge, right? Because that is embedded in, in the ways in which our systems are, um, are racist themselves, right? Even after Atlanta, where the killer is given the benefit of the doubt to say, well, he said it wasn't racism, so it's not racism. I think those things are extremely harmful to all of us, right? Who know that it is racism? So, um, you know, I, I, I want to just clarify my position on what I do think the police can do um, is, yes, please patrol white supremacy, right? The FBI said the most dangerous and harmful threat to domestic safety is extremist white supremacists. Why don't we know where they are? Um, why are white supremacists not arrested, um, you know, when they commit crimes in our communities as well? And so I just, I know this is hurtful to our community. I have been hearing about it since last year. We take cases and we provide victim services and we work with systems to um, make sure that victims are supported, that we are working, you know, educators who sometimes, um, you know, they're teachers in front of students and they use words like China virus. Well, it makes a, <laughs> it ultimately uh, impacts how other students treat that Asian student, right? And so all of those things are harmful. But I do want to say that racism has to be dealt systemically, and it is broad, and it is not just about the uh, the violent act that is committed, right? Yeah, I also want to mention something about, you know, I mean, I, I, I do agree with Leanna, you know, like the police has its own serve in terms of like for our community, but I also agree with Bo because you know there's a there's a very deep his, history of you know trans folks who have been victimized by the police in so many different ways you know just because of how we look of how we portray ourselves or how we even walk down the streets you know um, and that's why whenever you talk to trans folks you know. The police is not their favorite topic to talk about, you know, and um, and I think there needs to be more dealt more in terms of like really finding the root cause of these things, you know, and that's a whole different topic. You know, we really do need to talk about that separately. But there is that piece that, you know, not all policemen are good policemen, you know, and um, it's 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 sad because it, it could have been it could have been a better world, you know, so. Thank you so much, Vicki. I'm going to turn to our audience questions now. Um, thank you so much for submitting your comments and questions. Uh, Carol, I want to start with you. And I know that we already touched on the topic of of gender and, and how it impacts um, our communities as far as violence goes. Uh, but you also had a question of, uh, I think this is for Leanna, what do you think of having at least 50% or even more police being women, maybe all women? What do you think? Hmm. You know, I think women deal with problems a lot differently than men, for sure. I mean, the fact that uh, there are so many other patrol groups out there and that, um, you know, um, I, I, I really don't know what they do in, in their groups. But I, as far as my group is concerned, I, I think I'm one of the few um, woman-led groups uh, we have very, we're very structured. I'm, I almost kind of like act like a mommy. They call me UPC mommy because I'm very detailed about everything. So from from doing the dishes and keeping the our office clean to making sure all of our files are, are you know, 
good and ready. Um, we, I think as a woman, we, we do it very differently. We're more of like a, a nurturing, you know, we kind of like, uh, teach our members as, as we would like, um, teach our children. And of course the, you know, the, the, um, leadership, the vice president, treasurers and secretaries, they're, they're kind of like my, uh, my spouses, you know, my extended spouses. We have, uh, men and women in the board, but they're kind of like my, my partners and, and everything, right? They, I have to go through everything that I want to do. I have to go through them, ask for their permission and, and whatnot. So, um, I think that's very important. You know, I, I was in a group previously before, uh, UPC and it was more like, uh, it was a man who was in charge and basically, you know, if he says something, we didn't agree with it. It was his way or highway. And that's why, you know, Robert and I left and formed our own group. And, and, um, you know, I'm more of like, get everybody's opinion and, and experience. And, and like these ladies are saying, everybody has a different experience with the police. And, uh, even some of our, our partners in, in UPC, they're like, oh yeah, I've been harassed, you know, this time or that time. And, and it's real. That's real. What happens to them is real. So I, I've, I've known, you know, people that have been harassed or, you know, have other even more subtle um, racism, like, you know, if they're part of the police force, I know some of the officers say, you know, um, I, I was the only uh, Asian American in, certain, in a certain uh, police office and they treated me like, you know, I'm nobody, like I don't belong there. And, and they exclude me from lunches and stuff like that. And, you know, I experienced that myself when I was in the military, where I worked in uh, the Madigan hospital, where I, I was actually invited by one of my coworkers to lunch. And then when I got there, everybody looked like him. They were all blonde hair, blue eyes. They didn't want to talk to me. And I sat there the whole time eating my lunch and nobody even said hi to me or anything. And I just felt like, you know, I said, Albert, next time don't invite me to these lunches. I just sat there like I was just a flower. I just sat there and nobody talked to me the whole time. And, you know, you probably don't even realize that's called subtle discrimination or racism. So, you know what, I'd, I'd rather just go eat by myself. I'd be happy doing that. But um, so as far as but for women, I think um, not only does it need to be at least Close to 50% women, I think also women of different ethnicities is very important because I, we, we bring in a perspective that, uh, maybe some other ethnicities cannot bring in. You know, I, I think a, a, a white woman and an African American woman and an Asian woman, um, have different views, have very different views. And it's so important that every department has more diversity, uh, to, to help people understand, you know, what actually happens in their neighborhood and how they would deal with it. Some things that work for one neighborhood doesn't work for another, you know? So it's like, you know, uh, people from Chinatown, if they come into Bayview and and start talking smack to people in Bayview, they won't have it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that, you know? And same, same as some people, uh, uh, and the vice versa, some people, come from the baby, they go, go to Chinatown and try to talk smack the way they do there. It doesn't work. So it's, it's so important that we have more diversity, more diversity training within the police department. Um, so that way, you know, it, it, everybody feels like they could be a part of it. Thank you so much, Leanna. Um, I'm going to go to a question from Madison and Bo will have you answer this question, but can you talk about the dynamics of assimilation of Asians in, into American culture specifically relating to law enforcement and political views? 
You, you know, that that's such, um, it's a complicated response because uh, the Asian American community is so diverse, right? There's so many uh, different immigration paths that have brought us here. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm Hmong American, part of the South, Southeast Asian diaspora that came here post the wars in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And um, as a refugee, my family came here, um, you know, not because we wanted to, but because we, we, we had to in order to survive, right? Otherwise, um, you know, uh, worse things could have happened. And when we arrived, we were plopped in really the poorest parts of towns, right? Um, And uh, that was predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Um, And, you know, my parents were given their airplane tickets to uh, start paying back on and all of those things. And I know all the uh, perceptions that people have about refugees and that they get, you know, free cars, free, well, no, you don't get anything for free. You you get brought here, you are given your airplane tickets and they start, you know, billing you for those airplane tickets, right? And then you have sponsors who help you to adjust. And that is a very different uh, experience than uh, what we've seen here in Minnesota in the last, uh, I would say, 10, 15 years is really because our economy demands it. Um, we have a very educated um, Asian population that's immigrating here through from China and India and things. And, you know, and so we all come together and we make up the fabric of, you know, what is Asian, right? And then we have um, those who've been here for generations, um, you know, three, four, five generations even um, of Chinese uh, Americans, Japanese Americans. And then we also have, um, you know, Filipino Americans who have who immigrated here after the wars, and they're still trying to um, reunite with their family members um, from the Philippines, right? So I would say there is not one narrative about our uh, integration into America, but it is the story of of America, right? Which is that... um, even as refugees, we picked to come to this country because we really believed that it would provide an opportunity, right? That, um, uh, you know, if we work hard and if we come, you know, with aspirations that we can achieve. And I think the question is, um, you know, uh, it, does that hold true, right? Does that hold true for uh, many Americans? And and uh, when I look at uh, my own Southeast Asian community, I know that what often gets hidden is also um, hidden by things like the model minority myth, right? Or our inability to accept the diversity within the diversity. And so we want to just in a broad brush, just say Asian American, but you know, there's a very different experience from being Hmong than there is from being Chinese or, you know, all of those things while there are some shared values and uh, things like that and shared ambitions for coming to America, that story is really different. So I really just caution people from uh, saying there is one Asian American story because there are many uh, different Asian American stories, and actually, it just is getting more complicated, right? Because um, that we we are uh, the most diverse that we have ever been in history in terms of our communities, and the biggest growth has been post nineteen sixty five when the immigration law change um, changed and uh, allowed for more finally more immigration from China, I mean from uh, Asia, right? <laughs> uh, because before that. 
there was very little paths here. Um, so, you know, just um, part of that history is not taught, right? Um, and, and I really value that people can talk about their ethnic identities and their journeys here and because that's worth hearing. Thank you so much, Bo. I can't believe it, but if we're already at like an hour, where did the time go? I can listen to all three of you and the work that you do for many more hours. In fact, we all should join you in the work that you do. The final question that I have for you is um, is around sharing your final thoughts on the importance of building coalition. Each and every one of you reach out to other communities, other members, you know, whether it's race, whether it's gender. We need that in order to have the change. And so we'll start with Nikki, you know, especially I, want, I would love for you to talk about the fact that, you know, when it comes to HIV, AIDS, when it comes to transgender, when it comes to AAPI, your work centers the marginalized at the same time you're calling in so many people and some people where you have to change their hearts and minds in order for our community to stay alive and to thrive. So let's start there. Nikki? Yeah, I mean, I've been in this work for almost 25, 26 years, you know, like I started seven years old. No, just kidding. But um, it's like, um, um, I, one thing I have learned that really helped me a lot in terms of making sure that the work that I do is always in, in line is that um, I look at the bigger picture, you know, I, I have to look at the bigger picture of everything and how it impacts everybody. And I don't put myself in there, but I put the client in front of me first, you know, and, and the people that I serve and how these things are impacting them, because it, it really is about our people. It is really about our people. I'm just a vessel to do all this work, you know, and I also have my own opinions and my own beliefs and everything, but it really has made me stronger and to be more adaptable and flexible because there are times when you have to really look at situations, complicated situations where um, sometimes it, it you, you need to really step back and look at it and see how how can how everybody can work together you know that's my thing so Leanna yes yeah collaboration is so so important I I'm so happy to say that um there are so many uh patrol groups out there right now in San Francisco Chinatown in Los Angeles in San Jose and in Oakland and New York and we're actually somehow we're all working together like tomorrow we have a rally and um there's actually going to be two rallies, one starting at City Hall at 11 a.m. and one starting at Portsmouth Square uh, at 11 a.m. as well. And and there's at least uh, 10 organizations that are putting this together. So we like it's nonstop collaboration for us uh, with other patrol groups, with other nonprofits, with family associations, with real estate associations, with you know uh, a lot of nonprofits. Um, community-based organizations in the area. It's so important. And, and we were just talking to uh, uh, Polly and Allie about starting something in, in uh, North Carolina where they're at. There's there's so many things that we need to do to reach out uh, across cities, across countries, and, and just work with each other. Because bottom line, at the end of the day, we all want a better world for everybody. We want everybody to feel safe. And if that means that, you know, we uh, advocate for uh, police reform, but in, 
in a way that is going to be helpful to to the society and not not hurtful you know not so that's those are very important things that we look at I, I unfortunately i really believe the situation in san francisco the reforms are not working they're they're just just being soft on crime does not work. Um, they need to train the officers on how to be more culturally sensitive, how to be more sensitive to the, the uh, LGBT community, as well as um, you know senior citizens and working with disabled and youth. There's so many different things that, that need to be addressed. Uh, they can't just train people how to shoot, run, hide, and then you know put them on the streets. That's not enough. They need to provide a lot more training than that. Um, so, you know, and, and we actually collaborate with the police sometimes. So it's important that we know that when we work with them, that they're doing uh, what's best for the community at all times as well, because we're going to hold them accountable as well. You know, we, I might not be the police commissioner, commissioner, but we all kind of should be, everybody should be the, the so-called co police commissioner, right? Um, we have to not only, um, make them accountable but all the politicians accountable everybody who is in some kind of uh, power position um whatever they do we have to hold them accountable and but we also we have to work with them so it's such a delicate balance you know so and, and thank you guys for for being here today and thank you for giving me a chance to speak i know we might not be all agree uh, agreement with with every subject but i think i feel like you're all your passion and it, it means so much to me that you're here to to at least talk about it we, we should start dialogue and i think the more we talk to each other eventually we will come up with very good solutions thank you so much liana and finally bo and uh since since it is the michelle meow show i mean i would love for you to give your final thoughts on the importance of building coalition but with this statement that i have to make that white supremacy is the root of racialized hate. And so with that being said, building coalition and calling our communities in is the only path forward to dismantle what I just said. So, Bo? Thank you, Michelle. And really, thank you for having me. And, you know, it's such an honor to be here with Nikki and Liana as well. Um, I think this is exactly what we need to do more of, right? Have conversations um, to build the communities that we want. And so I just leave with a uh, belief that our liberations are tied together. If I am not safe, you are not safe, right? If I am not free, you are not free. Um, and because we are not one dimensional people, uh, you know, I'm not just an Asian person. I'm also a woman. I'm a mother. I'm an immigrant. I, you know, English is my second language. And, um, you know, having said that, we are born into systems um, that give power and privilege because of uh, differing identities. And so to the extent that we have to get to know each other. We have to build relationships that are deeply invested in each other so that we can talk about what are the kinds of communities that we want to build, right? And how do we not just ensure that for me or for you, but for everyone um, so that we can intentionally uh, confront that which is harmful, um, that we can disrupt behaviors that are not healthy, but that we can actually build communities that are abundant and loving and see each other's humanities. So the only way out of this is really through solidarity. And you can't get solidarity unless you are working across uh, communities. So um, I just leave with you, you with those words and say it's really up to us. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you to our speakers tonight, Nikki Kalma, Bo Talyarabe, 
and Leanna Louie. Please follow their work, support them if you can. Thank you to our sponsor, Ali Polly and Associates. And of course, thank you to the Commonwealth Club of California for providing the platform and bringing us all together. If you'd like to see all of our programs or look up any past programs, you can head to commonwealthclub.org or you can go to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for future Michelle Miao show programs next week. I will share my journey of alopecia areata and the impacts of the pandemic, the trauma that my body faced. So hence why the hair is cropped and short. It's beginning to grow back though. Um, I really want to thank you all for joining us and spending your Friday evening. Let's make it a better place for all of us, make it more safe and equitable and just. Be safe, be healthy. We'll see you next time.